Back on August 5th, 2020, we released an episode called Search for Shoes. That episode, we got to hear from a representative named Tracy from Samaritan's Feet. But it broke my heart to know that more than 1.5 billion people are affected by parasitic disease that are transferred by contaminated soil because they don't have proper footwear. That shoes, they can help prevent against diseases. They can help protect against diseases. They can even help our economic and educational opportunities because we have proper footwear. They can also help an individual pursue their dreams. So if you're wanting to know more about Samaritan's Feet, do so right now. Jump right over to SamaritansFeet.org. But let me give you some crazy numbers to think about. $50 provides a brand new pair of shoes and a message of hope to two children. $100 provides a message of hope and shoes for four children. This holiday season, as you consider how you spend your money and where you spend it, can I just ask you to consider giving a financial gift to Samaritan's Feet right now? Again, if you're interested in doing that, please visit SamaritansFeet.org. Thank you so much for listening and Merry Christmas. Hey, come take a walk with me, not like you used to do. Something different put yourself in other people's shoes. Open up your mind and open up your eyes and Welcome into Other People's Shoes. This is Neil, of course, with Other People's Shoes. Isn't it exciting today? I love, 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 love show day. Who doesn't love show day? Raise your hand. No, actually don't. That might hurt my feelings just a little bit. But you know what wouldn't hurt my feelings a little bit? If you jumped on over to your favorite social media of choice, whether that be Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, just give us a little like, a little follow, a little tweet, whatever it may be. And if you feel even more compelled to show some love, and affection. I think Nelson sang that song so many years ago. You know, the long-haired blonde guys? Yeah, love and affection. Anyway, I digress. Jump on over to OPSpodcast.com and just drop us a review or leave a voicemail or you know, just drop a comment of what you love. We would love, 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 love to hear that. Help me welcome in our guest today. Always love it when we have a fellow podcaster. I don't know why, but I do love podcaster conversations. It just feels a little more homey and more fun. So anyway, help me welcome in my friend, my new friend even. He's, of course, the host of Beyond the Rut podcast, helping Christian men pursue their dream without compromising their faith, their family, and their health. His episodes, much like mine, you know, I think are inspiring stories. They're insightful. They they just do amazing things, right? A show can really do that. It can transform you. Jerry did spend most of his life growing up through divorce, a suicide attempt by his father. He's been just around the world, really. He's, he has some army background to him, and I'm just super excited to sit with him today, helping us hopefully get out of the rut that we are in, the beyond the rut. And of course, we're going to hear all about that. We're going to ask him the most important, the really the two most important questions this season. So help me welcome him in. Jerry, Jerry, how are you today? I am doing great, Neil. Hey, the other thing about having uh, podcasters on your show, uh, it's vice versa, it goes the same way, is we bring our own microphones. Yeah. That is true because I do have guests that come on from time to time and the mic is, I'm not going to lie, it is a challenge. And so it is great to have shared audio engineering, I guess we could say, going on, right? There we go. Yep. (laughs) If anything, I'm bringing you good sound quality today. (laughs) That's the best part. Absolutely. So, so Jerry, I'm super excited, as I said, to have you on today. Just excited because I don't feel like I know you very well. And I feel like that's a great opportunity really to get to know you better and just what you're all about. So that's fun too. 
Awesome. Same here. I'm looking forward to this. Uh, we've crossed paths a lot through uh, mostly Christian Podcasters Association. And I think I've seen you pop up a couple of times in podcast movement community. We've done a couple of group calls together, but we never actually get to engage like this. So this is this is really cool. I love this. I'm excited. We're, we're going to have to send you a new shirt, though, because I'm not a fan of red, which is really weird. <laughs> I don't know why. I just have never been a fan of red. So we're going to have to get you maybe a light blue shirt. I don't know if you're opposed to light blue in any way. Some people I'm are. I'm for it. Yeah, most of my t-shirts are like the color of this background. I've got this gray color or uh, white or dark blue. And my wife was like, Jerry, you need some other colors. And so I just like got this red, ask me about my podcast t-shirt. And yeah, I'm just, I'm gradually starting to introduce new colors into my, my shirt game, I guess. So yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, just make sure our wives never talk because my wife wants me to expand my color palette as well. As you might imagine, a lot of my shirts are light blue. Oh, and they man. probably have like an N and a C in somewhere on them. So there we are. Yeah. Fun there stuff. You go. So, Tar Heels, right? <laughs> yeah. Big Tar Heels fan. Yeah. I We said this in the green room and it was kind of fun to laugh about, but you're the second Jerry we've had on this season. And I feel like there's a lot of pressure kind of on you in this moment because the first Jerry we had was fantastic. Great okay. guest. Amazing stuff. And so, I mean, not to put pressure on you, but when I think of the name Jerry, I think of Jerry Rice, you know, old San Francisco 49er oh, uh, wide receiver who was amazing and I'm not going to say he was the goat because I think that was Steve Largen but pretty close but I'm just telling you right now there is some pressure on you Jerry so just you got to bring that A game so I hope you're ready. All right. Do my best. All right. Now I don't think the other Jerry met I actually didn't meet Jerry Rice either. I did get to see Jerry Rice in training camp T98. Oh man. Yes guys I am old. Uh, so I graduated from University of the Pacific. San Francisco 49ers had just contracted with UOP to use our campus for their uh, summer workouts which meant if you were still on campus taking summer school like I was uh, you can go see them work out at the end of the summertime and the only reason why I bring this up is because his work ethic was phenomenal. I think around that time Terrell Owens was a rookie and so you'd see a couple of guys are doing their routes the quarterbacks are throwing them passes or the coaches are th somebody's throwing them passes and they're catching them and like Terrell Owens, he'd catch his pass. He'd run like five or six steps and kind of throw the ball down and kind of jog on back to the line. And a lot of the other receivers did that. But then there was one receiver who caught the ball and sprinted all the way down to the end zone and then brought the ball back and then handed it to somebody and got back in line. And I was like, who's that guy? And then I, I saw the name on the back and it was Rice. And I'm like, well, there you go. That's why the guy's a team captain. I mean, he and he didn't just do that one time to show up Terrell. He did that every single pass during that practice that went on for like an hour. Caught the ball, sprinted to the end zone. Caught the ball, sprinted to the end zone. And seeing him do that, it, it made me think about, you know, a lot of folks kind of just like catch the ball and say, okay, good, I'm done. And here's this guy who is successful because every time he catches the ball, he's got his eye on the end zone, the goal. And I'm like, man, that's so anyway, just throwing that out there. First volley. Boom. I love it. No, I love it a lot. And I have heard his training regimen. I mean, it, it, it's unfathomable in some yeah. of the things that he would do in the mountains he would run and, and just things like that. Crazy stuff. So, no. Yeah. And he almost won Dancing with the Stars. He almost so. won Dancing with the Stars. I didn't even know that. So, there you go. So, so Jerry, place. getting into your stuff, I love I love asking people this question because I think it is set it, it really sets the foundation for the show, right? It really does. So so Jerry, we gotta ask this, we gotta know this. So Jerry, what size shoes do you wear? And I've got Hobbit feet, so uh, nine and a half extra wide. 
And, and and I say that because I'm five foot four, so I should have a size shoe that's around eight, maybe seven. But no, I got my dad's feet. He's like five ten, so nine and a half extra wide. Those are hard to come by, so I wind up getting a size ten. Looks even goofier. So there we go. Curse of a short guy with big feet. That's awesome. Please tell me you're not wearing New Balance shoes. But what size or, or what <laughs> style? Excuse me. What style or brand are we are we rocking these days? Oh man, it depends on the occasion. So if, I mean, for work, I've got some Sperry's that just slip on. So when I get home, I can just kick them off. Now. In Texas, it's hot, so lots of flip-flops. Uh, but ideally, because I like to backpack, but I don't like heavy boots, I wear uh, Nike fly nets. There we go. Because they're versatile. I can run them. They look kind of cool, so I can hang out with my kids. And then I go hiking, and I don't have heavy boots. Nice. Nike fly nets. That's that's fun. I haven't heard that yeah. one yet, so that's fun. Okay. All right. That's good stuff. All right. So, Jerry, getting into you even more deeper, as we say, the dolphin dive, right? Diving below the water. I'm perplexed by this question because I'm getting such an array of answers and a, such an array of, of people's almost emotional response to this question. And I didn't even know that like starting out, you know, I threw it off on, on a couple of people that I trust, you know, and you know, some of these people too, you know, the Eric Nevins of the world and some other people. And I just say, Hey, I'm thinking about new season, you know, here, here we go. Here's our, here's going to be our topic. Cause we always like to go in seasons. I just think that's fun as a podcaster. You can kind of switch gears and kind of keep the show kind of relevant and more exciting. And I said, you know, I'm thinking about asking people this question, like, are you enough? And people were responding like, Oh my gosh, I, I have not felt like I'm not enough. I have a moment where I felt like I wasn't enough. I have this that I, you know, and, and it just kept compiling and compiling. I'm like, man, I might, I might be on to, you know, we're talking 49ers. I might've struck gold <laughs> without even knowing it with this question. And so Jerry, I'm going to ask you the same thing. We've kind of been asking everybody as we lead off these, these shows. And that's this, has there been a moment where you felt like, man, I just wasn't enough, mm, man. I mean, cause there's a lot of vacations. So that's where I'm just kind of like, thinking that through. There's one, I would say there's one thing that definitely, I don't know if it haunts me to this day, but it, it does remind me that I should not sit on my laurels. And that is a stark reminder I got in a training event before the invasion of Iraq. So I'm with uh, the 3rd Infantry Division. I'm a medic. And up to this point, a medic's job is pretty chill. You learn how to do some medical stuff. Nobody ever gets hurt and everybody lets you rest a lot. And so that was no different. We're in Kuwait. We're waiting to invade. And out of nowhere, our physician assistant, our battalion surgeon, drives up to where I am and says, hey, Sergeant Dugan, we're going to go and uh, just kind of check out one of the vehicles and kind of see how everybody's doing. When's the last time you walked around and rounded on, rounded on the troops? And I said, well, uh, I was just shooting the breeze with them about an hour ago. Great. Let's go on over. Turns out the guy set up a training scenario for me. So we get up to this vehicle and dudes are kind of like draped all over the place. And he turns to me and says, all right, this vehicle just got hit by an artillery round. Uh, you're the only medic on scene. What do you do? And I, I was not ready for that. I'm like, ah. And so I'm like, well, obviously we got to pull the people out. He goes, well, this whole cabin's on fire. So the only way you can get in there is through that top part. I'm like, ah, I never had to climb this vehicle. It was an armored artillery shell carrier, ammo carrier. I never touched that vehicle. So now I got to figure out on the fly, how do I get on this vehicle? And I get to the top. And of course, the guy at the top is the heaviest guy in this particular crew. I'm five foot four. I weigh about 160 pounds at the time. And I'm pulling the guy who's like six foot tall, 300, almost like he's like 260, maybe 250. I got to lift him up out of the hatch. And he's been told be dead weight. Uh, so in the end, I do get them all out, but they're all pretty much dead. And he lets me know, hey, this is what my assessment is of you. Uh, you're not prepared. And uh, here's why. You didn't know this vehicle. You didn't know all the different hatches on this vehicle. You could have actually got this guy down through the side hatch. And, it, and you got to be in better shape. I mean, yeah, you're little, but um, that guy over there could lift this big guy up easily. And I was just like, oh, 
Okay. That just stuck with me that I was never going to be caught unprepared ever again. Because this was in front of like 100 guys. They all watched Doc. This is Doc. Yeah, Doc's got this. Doc's not getting this. Doc, Doc's letting us die. Doc can't lift that dude up. And so it was like a, it was meant to be a confidence boost, but also a challenge. Uh, it, it put everybody on edge. Like, okay, Doc's got to do some pushups. We got to let Doc get to know these vehicles. So I think that's probably the most recent time I felt like I wasn't enough. Uh, yeah, there have been other times where I've been challenged. I just kind of suck it up and remember that moment and move on. How humiliating was that experience? Oh, big time, because I had spent, I've known this unit for almost two years. So they'd seen me on field exercises. They've seen me perform in the classroom when I went through training. They'd see me get awards, maybe not a lot of awards, but they'd see me get recognized. They see me, you know, get promoted. You know, here I am in my moment where I'm supposed to shine and I'm failing dismally. Uh, so it was, it was an eye opener for everybody, but mostly for me. So fast forward, you're going into, I'm, I'm imagining now you've gone into Kuwait. Was it the first Gulf War or was it this? Uh, the second one. So this is in 2003. Okay. Yeah. The most recent one. Okay. That's the one that we actually got Saddam. So it's kind of exciting for me, at least, because a Marine found Saddam. Um, my dad's a former Marine. So it was nice. exciting for me that, that the Marines found him, not the <laughs> Army. Just Sorry, a little rivalry going on there. We found him. We didn't. They did cordon it off. Don't get it. We didn't play with army men as kids. We played with Marines. So I'm just saying. Uh, um, there you go. <laughs> but the reason why I, I bring that up is I have heard people say that combat is like nothing other. There, there's nothing on this planet that can ever prepare you, get you ready. There's not enough training in the world that really when it all hits the fan, whatever that it is, there's nothing that can prepare you for that. Yeah. So knowing that you kind of had this immediate, like just obviously awful moment, right? Embarrassing moment. I mean, embarrassing doesn't even seem to cover it. Humiliating I feels more appropriate. Did you at all question yourself as you went into battle? Like, are these guys still thinking in the back of their mind is Doc got us? Because clearly over here when it wasn't real, he didn't have us. And now that it's going to get real, is he going to have us? D did you ever wrestle with that or maybe have anyone say anything to you about that? Now, the rest of my unit was very forgiving. I mean, they they saw it. It was the moment. Uh, a couple of guys kind of picked me up and said, hey, it's okay, Doc. We, You finally got a taste of our medicine. <laughs> you know, like, uh, so the combat arms guys, when they do their training, it's it's all towards a lose-lose scenario. So uh, the opposition force, when you go into training, we don't always know where they are, but they always know where we are, our numbers, our capabilities, our plans are even fed to them. So they have the upper hand, plus the observer controllers are on their side. So every training scenario that we do on the combat side is to lose. And from that, you learn where your weak points are and so on. Now on the medical side of things, it, it's not always the case. We, you know, when we train, it, it's almost always a successful outcome. And we go back and we look at the processes that we went through. So this was probably the first time I actually got faced with a lose-lose scenario. Like there was no way I was going to save uh, all those guys. Like it was going to be awesome if I could save just one of them by the way that it later on on reflection, just by, by the way that scenario was evolving as it went, it would have been a miracle to save one of them. And so it was just a, a test of how I would handle it, how I'd adjust under fire, you know, think on my feet. And then at the same time, kind of be that lesson of you really do need, need to know these vehicles. So, but I did go in, you know, thinking through everything I'd ever learned though. So it was that wake up call, like, okay, gosh, we're, <laughs> you know, it's like 18 hours from now, we're going to cross this minefield. I've got to trust that one, the engineers who plowed through this minefield gave us a big enough lane to go through. But uh, if 
somebody veers off course and gets blown up, I got to start thinking through, like, how do I get to that guy who's in the vehicle who's blown up? So, you know, if it's a minefield, how do I get that guy out of the minefield? How do I treat the person? How do I call in a nine line medevac? Where is my aid bag right now? Ah, dang it. There it is. And you know, like, I'm going through all these like motions in my head and, you know, in the movies, you know, they make war look like it's just nonstop action, like Black Hawk Down, but it was a lot of boredom with intermittent fire for our artillery unit. And so I had a lot of time to think and reflect and kind of prepare myself mentally. Yeah, that that one training lesson did rattle me for a very long time. What possesses someone like such as yourself to really say, "Yeah, I'm I'm going to go fight for our country. I'm going to go I'm going to go put my life on the line." What motivated Jerry to sign up and and do that? Uh, I was a pre-med student because as I was growing up, my mom always said, "You're going to grow up, get good grades, become a doctor." join the army, that kind of thing. And by the time I got out of high school, I was like, "Ah, I'm not going to join the military. They just kill people. And I I don't want to bring war to the people. I want to bring peace and love and healing. So I still was a pre-med student. Deep down inside though, turns out I did not want to be a doctor. And I, you know, looking back, realized I self-sabotaged or I sabotaged my own grades. So uh, I I graduated with like a 2.3 GPA while tutoring my classmates who got 3.5 and higher. So it's like, it was the thing that boggled my faculty advisor's mind. Like, how are you getting tutored by Jerry? He didn't tell them my grades, but I could see it in his face. Like, how are you tutoring people to pass classes that you're failing yourself? I was broke. I barely got out of college. I needed some work experience to offset my bad grades because I still had it in my head I was going to be a doctor. And I wanted to travel. A lot of my friends were graduating from college and getting office jobs. Already, I could see that they hated it. And we, you know, ran into people who graduated ahead of us. And they just kept saying, enjoy these years because when you get in the workforce, you're just going to work nonstop. I haven't traveled in four years. And I'm thinking, I want to travel. I want to see the world. And so I did the one thing my dad said not to, which was join the army because uh, there'd be a paycheck. Uh, they would pay me to get trained. They'd pay me to get some experience and they'd pay me to travel the world. Uh, there you have it. They they took me in. Uh, they kind of duped me a little bit. They tried to get me to go as an infantryman. And in the end, I wound up going in as a medic. Well, being, a, again, a, a Marine kid or an MK, some might even say, my dad always told me, how do you know when a recruiter's lying? And the, it's kind of a joke and their mouth is moving. I'll just give the punchline. For those that don't get it, you know, you're like, what? I don't understand. Ask somebody in the military, they'll they'll get a good kick out of that joke. So there's there's a good yeah. joke for you. <laughs> uh, take away already. Go ahead and take that away. Use that. Tweet that. Whatever you want to do. But again, I'm fascinated by people that sign up. I'm I'm always curious of the motivation behind it. I did not sign up. I did not want to go. I was not forced to go. Of course, my my dad never put pressure on us to go or not to go. However, I always wonder what my life would have been like had I gone. I think it would have been strikingly different. Oh, yeah. You know, I, I just am always fascinated by that. In that moment of, of failure, of not feeling like enough, did that snowball into other areas of life? Or did that moment, was that just an isolated anomaly? Jerry's never felt like that ever again moment. And now he's this rock star podcaster now. Now <laughs> uh, I always feel good. No, I'm kidding. No one's ever said that except now. Now, yes, I'm taking it. Um, I think that was probably the one of the last times I allowed myself to not feel like I'm enough or to feel like I'm not enough. There was another incident when I was younger, like 11 years old, and uh, that's when my dad was suicidal. And it was my brother. He was nine. I was 11, trying to you know keep him from succeeding. And one day while he was on my watch, he almost succeeded. 
So that definitely had haunted me for the longest time. I guess compounding that with this, this training exercise that I failed dismally, that kind of compounded. So that, that's a big part of that driver, that uh, almost savior complex. Like, I got to stay vigilant. I got to stay serious. I got to get back on my A game because people's lives depend on me. And at the same time, like, I wasn't expecting to come out of that war, Operation Iraqi Freedom. So I remember overhearing some of our leaders out of a planning session, uh, we were expecting, I think, 25 to 30% casualties. And I was just kind of doing the math in my head and kind of remembering like the early days of my medic training. They they have you watch this video about the history of the, the medical corps and how medics became a part of the army. And that of all the jobs in the military, in the army specifically, of all the jobs in the army, the medics have the highest number of posthumously awards given than any other job in the army. And so here I am thinking, wow, 25 to 30% casualty rate. I'm in the field that has the most posthumously given awards. I'm not going home. I'm, I'm going to die. And I wasn't a Christian yet. Again, on the night that the war's kicking off, uh, we're told to get in our chemical suits and do say a prayer. And it was just like, God, if you're real, you better replace me with somebody who's better than me, who's going to love my wife better than I love her and love my children as if they were his own own children. That's all I'm asking of you. Peace out. I didn't say peace out, but it was something like that. I I didn't say amen because I didn't want it to be a prayer. You know, God forbid I prayed. I'm I'm an agnostic. We're an atheist. (laughs) And, um, but I just put it out there just to cover all my bases. So then I just went back to that serious mode of no one's going to die on my watch and I'm going to keep it together. I'm going to be on the ball. So I go through the war effort. I go home and I'm just like, well, God, I didn't have to live up to my part of the bargain or I guess you don't have to, you're off the hook because I I made it. Ah, You know, not understand that whole, like, turns out I'm going to be made a new creation a couple of years later. I think that was the big shift for me was when I did receive Jesus into my heart and become a Christian. That was in 2005. So I'm in the Iraq invasion in 2003. I get out of the army at the end of 2003 and then mid 2005, I received Jesus. So yeah, that just set a whole new transformation in me that helped me balance that. Yeah, still strive for excellence. You know, it's still a big part of me is to do my best, to live my best life. Um, You know, you only live once here, so make the best of it. But then to give myself some grace that I don't have to be perfect. I'm not expected to be perfect and I'm human. So I am going to make mistakes and just forgive myself for that. So I think that was the biggest shift for me was to, you know, to become a Christian and to really grasp that idea of forgiveness and grace, I think has allowed me to just let go and not worry about, it doesn't matter if I'm worthy or not or enough. I'm exactly, I'm placed exactly where I need to be right now with the experience, the knowledge and the skills that are needed right now. And I'll probably grow from this. Maybe somebody else will grow from this. And so that I think is where the, uh, the feelings of not being adequate have kind of gone away. If I were to I've never had to think about that, dude. <laughs> Thanks. I'm just, you know, kind of building the the blocks here, and I'm not a good block builder. Maybe I hated Legos as a kid. You're doing great. <laughs> I I probably hit more kids with blocks than I built with them. So, uh, you know, there we are. I, I I never was the erector set guy or the Lincoln Logs or yeah. Tinker Toys. So I was never really good at any of that stuff. And what's funny is my dad's a combat engineer. So, you know, building should be in my DNA, right? And he used to sit and build models, you know, as a kid, and we couldn't touch them. We look at them, we couldn't touch them. But I'm not really good at building stuff, I guess, is the whole <laughs> rant there to, to say this. So, okay. I, so I, I don't even know what we're building here others? with you, Jerry, but but I think I do. So kind of recapping what you're saying, like I hear you as a young adolescent guy, you know, not having a great role model as a dad, 
I mean, I'm, I'm not projecting. I mean, maybe your dad's like the most amazing person on the planet, but if he's suicidal, chances are pretty good. He probably didn't set a great role model. I don't know. Maybe I'm judging. Yeah. Overall. Yes. That season in his life. No. <laughs> yeah. I mean, he's the kind of guy that would give his shirt off his back for you and get the last 20 bucks out of his pocket for you. But yeah, when it came to that, he just didn't know to handle how to handle it in a serious relationship and know how to handle a breakup. And you know, his one relationship, yeah, he got dumped and yeah. So of course I'm coming from the, the perspective of somebody who's forgiven him a long time ago. But I'm hearing this, as you say, like dad, to be on like suicide watch for your dad, I mean, that's yeah. like a kind oh, yeah. of a serious thing. And then going forward, you know, I would think as you failed in this scenario in Iraq, right before you guys go in, that's got to flash you back like, oh my gosh, here we go again. I'm on kind of quote unquote suicide watch. What if I fail again? You know, now obviously you didn't fail with your dad, but I mean, I would think that would just kind of compound. And then coming back, you know, maybe there's still that little bit of you inside that says, am I enough? Because I, again, I'm, I'm projecting here, but then fast forward, you say you make a decision for Jesus. So somewhere along that way, you had to recognize even in your own heart, Jerry's not enough. He needs more. And so it reminds me of a quote, and we'll get to your quote because your quote's cool. This quote's cool too, but I think your quote's cooler than this maybe. So here's the quote I'm thinking of, and it's from an Oregon runner, Steve Prefontaine. It's actually one of my favorite quotes, and it's, to give anything less than your best is to sacrifice the gift. So my question to you in building all of that, whatever we were building, do you feel like in, in any moment in your life, you've really sacrificed the gift that you've been given? Oh man, no. <laughs> I mean, I think there are moments where I'm not at my you know best or my like at peak performance, of course. But if there is a goal in my heart, you know, if there's a the goal that I've set my heart onto to go and achieve, I'm, I'm going after it. If I have a day where I just didn't cut the mustard or didn't meet the milestone, uh, I just forgive myself, brush it off and do it again. Just give it a shot the next day. And a big part of that is what I guess what gives me that confidence and that that big OK is I wound up being the first in my family to go to college and finish college as well. And this was coming from an extended family that would tell me while I was growing up that books will never get you anywhere. Books will never get you a job. You know, fast forward, you know, 30 ish years. And it's like, well, it looks like books got me a master's degree and a pretty well-paying job and, and got me into some fields that I really love and enjoy and given me some experiences that I would never would have gotten otherwise. When I tried out for football in high school, you know, people kind of looked at me like, hey, you're kind of small. And I wind up playing offensive guard. Yeah. You know, and it was fun. It just happened. Uh, I got a, a high school coach that loved having small, agile, technically sound guards. And he just loved pulling traps and sweeps. And I, I got a lot of running in, got to take out a lot of big guys. So big confidence boost there. Like there aren't challenges that aren't achievable if you're willing to learn how to do it and go out and do it and just get it done. And so that does tend to drive me quite a bit. And yeah, even like something like podcasting, you know, it's like I could just simply have stayed the way I've been doing it since I started, which was on a smartphone. You know, my daughter and I started a podcast called Family Time Q&A. This was eight years ago from the time we're recording this. And we just recorded it on my phone and then we uploaded it. We processed it a little bit with Alphonic and then we just uploaded it to Podbean. I, I think if you rest on your laurels, that's kind of how you always do it. Like, well, I've always done this show on my smartphone. <laughs> Why would I want to upgrade? And it's like, no, what I've done is just kind of learn more and more and more. And I wanted to be good at this. I wanted to share other people's stories about their overcoming their ruts and their moments of feeling low or stuck. And uh, because not everybody wants to listen to me because they kind of look at me and I'm, 
and I'm nowhere near this, the levels of success that I wanted or, and, and I don't want to compare myself ever. Uh, but folks kind of look at me and like, oh, it must be nice to have everything handed to you. And I'm like, face foreclosure. I lost count how many times from 2006 to about 2011. You know, my dad was on food stamps. We haven't even talked about from when I was 11 to when I was 14, you know, seeing my dad, well, seeing my mom leave us and then seeing my dad attempt suicide. And then coming out of that thinking, ah, oh, we're in the clear only to be bullied by my cousins and a couple of uncles until I was 14. Yeah, so folks tend to see the happy-go-lucky Jerry, but they never see the darker, did you come through all that? Yeah, I, I don't waste the best that I've been given because I've come from a family where they weren't given their best. The dream among a lot of my cousins was uh, I, I'll get emancipated when I'm 16 and I'll draw social security income. That's that's my dream. And I'll live in an apartment that the government provides. And I'm like, that's not a life. You know, there's having lived in Japan as a kid when my dad was in the army, like I, there's a whole world out there, guys. Like, let's go see it. Let's make a difference in it. Uh, again, having become a Christian, that that's given me some purpose and uh, becoming a parent also. You know, there came a point where I realized I needed to be a better father and my own personal achievements aren't as important uh, as it is how I'm pouring into my children. So there's a lot of things that motivate me to just give it my all, give it my best because people are watching. And more importantly, of all the people who are watching, my kids are watching. And if I fail, I, I've owned up and I've told them. In fact, we had a whole podcast that was about me being a normal, vulnerable, not perfect guy. And that was that Family Time Q&A podcast. Thanks for that rant. I always try to listen to what you're not saying. And maybe that's too many years of, you know, I used to work in collections for five years. And so I would always tease people that I'm looking for the truth within the lie. I'm not saying you're lying in this moment. <laughs> Just to be clear, I don't want to offend. But you know, when you're working collections, like people 90% of the time are probably lying to you in some respects. I'm just saying, like, that's just been my experience. So now I'm going to get hate mail. I'm not I, I can't pay that in full, I swear. <laughs> you, you might be. You might not want to pay me, but you're paying somebody, you know. But I say that because I would always listen for the truth within the lie. And so in that, I hear in your voice, my perception, that there's still some oh. hurt from your mom. Maybe I'm wrong. Do you in any way feel like it was your fault that you couldn't keep them together as a child? Did you ever think that or feel that? Mm, no, I that part I don't. I think if there's any pain because of that divorce now, uh, because my mom and I've had a series of conversations when I was in my 20s and, and going into my 30s, because I think the sad part for me is that there's still a part of her that believes the lie she was told that convinced her to leave my dad. So I think to me, that's the sad part. Other than that, like her relationship with me is very much healed. She has missed a lot of my life. I mean, I lived my life and I still am living my life. It, it saddens me because she left when I was 11. So she missed the small accomplishments when I was in middle school. Probably a good thing because, I mean, she's from Thailand and um, I almost didn't pass eighth grade English. Asian mom, almost failed English. I would have been in big trouble. So I think in that respect, it was good that my parents were split. Past that, when I get to high school, you know, so we get past middle school. In high school, there, 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 were, a lot of, there were a lot of accomplishments I was making in high school that sadly my mom missed because of the divorce. Uh, she lived in Alabama, we were in, and then ultimately she went to North Carolina. We were in California. That distance, she never came out to see us. We always had to go out to see her. So there was there was a lot of that that she missed out on that does make me sad. Uh, she's made up for it by being more plugged into my kids' lives, uh, not as much as my mother-in-law, more so than when I was growing up. Yes, yeah, so I, th I think those are probably the saddest moments that I wouldn't call it pain, but just sad. It, it would have been nice if she was closer, maybe not to me, but at least to my children. I could tell that there's pain in her voice of that loss of not seeing me grow up. I think my favorite was still getting the birds and bees talk when I was 23. Uh, so uh, that, 
So that that was probably a, a uh oh moment. Like my mom still thinks I am like eleven or twelve because she's trying to talk to me about the birds and bees. Uh, this is embarrassing. This is awkward. And and so how do I tell her this? But yeah, uh, just a few years ago though, she had made a comment about my dad having a girlfriend while they were still married. I'm like, no, you were married to my dad. <laughs> did, did you not see how socially awkward the guy is? So anyway, yeah, he's socially awkward. He he is not a romantic guy at all, which is part of why they ultimately got divorced. So you mentioned being an example. And, and really trying to set that fatherly example, right? That, that that's an important kind of pillar in your life and, a, and just a key component to who you are. Where do you think that comes from? Oh, that uh, definitely was that season from when I was 11 to 14. So, yeah, I, we talked about my dad and my mom had split up. Uh, we had just gone through that season where my dad was suicidal and he got the help he needed. But then to come back to the United States and be among my grandparents and some aunts and uncles and my cousins from 11 to 14. You know, it, it's just seeing how, oh man, what's the, the way I wanted to say that? I had a couple of uncles also going through a divorce. There we go. Divorce was like common in that season in the Dugan family or the Dugan clan. A couple of those uncles did not handle it well at all. So one of those uncles wound up bullying my cousins and I, and he thought he was cool for it. You know, and I'm thinking, gosh, this guy's in his late 30s, early 30s, and he thinks he's cool because he can pick on 11 and 12 year olds. Like there's nothing cool about that. Seeing the damage it had on his kids, his kids were like high IQ, high performing kids. Then he and his wife had split up and he's providing no stability for them. You know, the way he's talking about women is very uh, demeaning. His kids just drop fast and they take on drugs and alcohol and you know, to this day, it still impacts their lives and they don't realize it. Another set of cousins, same thing. The dad had his wife leave and he went into depression. And so they're kind of reeling from that. And then there's my grandfather who carpenter, hardworking man, you know, painted airplanes during World War II. But I didn't notice it until I was a little bit older, like closer to 14. And then definitely really saw it when I was like 18, 19 years old was that it wasn't good enough for him to be a hardworking man. He had to be better than his kids and he let them know, you know, my dad had borrowed some money from him. He let my dad know, Hey, you wouldn't be in that apartment unless I loaned this money to you. Hey kids, do you know how much I loan your dad? Like it just like demeaning my dad in front of his own kids. So it gave me time to like reflect and think over, over time because just bored out of my mind in my grandparents' house being picked on and seeing my grandfather be a, you know, pretty much a jerk to my dad. Yeah, by 14, I just kind of drew a line in the sand. And a big part of it was because that that one uncle who did pick on me, uh, he and I got into a fight. You know, I was like 14. He was like definitely close to 40 by then. He was in one of his moods and, you know, we're being teenagers and being loud in the living room. And he just kind of came out and said something dumb, like the word to the wise is sufficient. And I was like, he always says that, but there's never a word that precedes that. And so I'm like, I'm just sick of this. Like, who is this guy? And so I just said, what word? Because <laughs> I was done. I'm like, I, I am not going to be a part of this family anymore if this is where they're going. And I'm not going to be bullied by this guy anymore. That's for sure. And I'm, I'm a little guy. At this time, I'm like four foot ten. I, I just turn to him I'm like, what word? He goes, what? Half breed? And I was like, seriously, what word? Like you say the word to the wise is sufficient, but there's never a word. How empty are you? And all my cousins, like they had my back and then they didn't. And so they all kind of do that wild west thing. Like there's going to be a shootout and they like spread apart. And uh, now I'm on my own. And the guy like puts me, like starts choking me. And and now I got to fight back because I mean, I'm being choked out. But eventually I, you know, just kind of violent back and I'm screaming and I'm like trying to claw to him. I'm kicking him in places that hurt. And my grandfather takes his side and I'm just like, of course. Well, I don't want to be a part of this racist family. If, if you can't accept me because I'm the half breed gook chink in this family, then uh, I don't need to be here. And I walked out. Uh, what they don't know is I walked out the front door and I immediately, because I had nowhere to go, like 
150 miles away from my home. I just snuck into the garage and I hid in the garage for a couple hours until my dad came back to my grandpa's house. That was the moment when I realized and drew that line in the sand. I'm not following this family's footsteps. Where it is going is horrible and dark and hopeless. I've got friends back at school who have parents who are still together, who go on family vacations and they want to go. They may not be the best in school. Man, they've got something I'm missing. I want to know more about that. And so when my dad did show up and he did confront his family and said, my son doesn't have to be here anymore. I got to learn more about you know the families that my friends had. Yeah, came across a couple of couples that were just good role models. When we were in Germany, by the way, after my dad was attempting suicide, we did stay with a foster family. So I had time to think about that family and how closely connected they were. And I just, that was that was it. So 14 years old and drawing that line in the sand saying, I want that type of family where the husband and wife talk to each other like adults and they work things through that they may not be rich, but they've got their finances in order to take care of what they have under the roof. Their kids may be the smartest, but they also have character. Or maybe they're not the brightest, but they still have character and work ethic. I want that in my children. They're following the example of their parents, but they don't feel like they can never measure up to their parents. So their parents are lifting them up and encouraging them to be better than, be who you are meant to be. And so I was just taking notes from like at least around 14 years old on into my 20s, just taking notes and observing families. And you know, this is the kind of family, this is the kind of thing I dream of when I think of success. I love that. And my heart breaks for that all at the same time. I love the fact that you obviously stood up. Enough's enough. Draw the line in the sand. I don't know if I would have done that at 14. Just saying. So, you know, you're like eight steps ahead of me in that regard. What I hear in that even is like, this family isn't enough for me. Like, if you can't accept me for who I am, and really, it's not like you were like flamboyant. You you mentioned Terrell Owens when we were talking our Jerry Rice story that he was very flamboyant, very just stand out. Like, look at me, one, two, three, look at me. It's not even like you were saying that. It's like, Listen, I'm a part of this family too, and I want respect. And if you're not going to give it to me, guess what? You're not good enough for me either. So there's this really old, old song, old song. First time I heard it, I wept, just wept. So I want to read you these lyrics and get your feedback on it. It says, Lord, so, you know, it's like they're singing. I'm not going to sing because nobody wants to hear that. Not even Jerry. Nobody wants to hear that. But it says, Lord, I want to be just like you because he... The, the, the singer is referring to his son because he wants to be just like me. I want to be a holy example for his innocent eyes to see. Help me be a living Bible Lord that my little boy can read. I want to be just like you because he wants to be just like me. Wow. That's Phillips Craig and Dean, by the way, in case you're wondering. And the song is called, I Just Want to Be Like You. When you hear those words, what is that well up inside of you? Mm. Oh, man. One of the things that and this is one of those moments right now, in fact, is, so I mentioned earlier, I, I did become a Christian in 2005. There are these moments where I'm just kind of reminded of all the points in time in my life where God was already there, even before I was a Christian. So, you know, we just finished talking about that line in the sand I drew when I was 14. Well, by the time I was 27 years old as an army sergeant in Baghdad, by then I'd forgotten that. I'd forgotten that line in the sand that I drew. I'd forgotten that I wanted to be a father my son could look up to. And I had a daughter on the way while I was deployed in Baghdad. On the day my daughter was born, so I got a letter on April 30th and opened it and, and my wife had written me. First letter I'd gotten in over a month and a half and some, and actually almost two months. And it was to let me know that she was going to have a C-section and our daughter was going to be born on April 30th. And I'm looking at 
that and I'm looking at the date on my watch and it's April 30th. I'm like, holy cow, my, my daughter's being born. And I look at my window and there are looters inside our compound stealing stuff. And so that was like my celebration, like, hey, oh shoot, and grab your weapon, grab your body armor. Hey guys, get these guys. And what was a bright day for me was also a dark day because with that, we did catch these guys. I wound up breaking somebody's ribs and then making him watch me make his friends fix the wall they broke. Then there was a family that we caught and we had stripped the father and the son down and burned their clothes and their money and everything they had because we thought if we humiliate them enough, they're not coming back. If I can strip that man of his dignity and self-worth, he's not coming back in here. And then we go into another compound and we're chasing looters out of there because if we can chase them out of there, they're not coming into this one. And then there was like a group of like three or four looters and I caught them in a warehouse just right next door to where my hooch was. Done the same thing. Stripped them all naked, burned their clothes, burned their money, burned their belongings and said, now fix my wall. And this guy walks up and he's a soldier. He's a private, brand new to the unit. And he's from a different platoon. And he just says, hey, Sergeant, what's up with their clothes? And I'm like, what are you talking about? <laughs> well, what's up with their clothes? Why Why did you strip them down? Like, well, because they keep coming back in here and they're not getting it. So if I, I can't kill them and I'm not going to shoot them uh, without killing them. And so maybe if I embarrass them enough, they'll never come back. What are you doing? And I look at the guy again, the thing that I'm drawn to because I'm a sergeant and you know I'm looking at his uniform and he's got a gold chain necklace hanging out and he didn't do it on purpose. It's just hanging out because he was kind of sloppy in this moment. And it was a cross on that necklace. He's looking me in the eye. And the look on his face was sadness and compassion, not for me, but for the people on the ground. And I remember saying the most non-graceful thing ever, and that was, hey, you can either help me pull security or you can help them. Which one do you want to do? And he just said, Sergeant, you have a good day. And he walked off. And in that, that, in that moment, I thought he was surrendering to my authority. And he was surrendering to the ultimatum I gave him. But knowing what I know now about being obedient to the tuggings that God puts on your heart, he was surrendering to God. Like, like, because now I've had that moment in my own face, um, not to the degree that he did and the courage that he had. He was just sort of, it was like, it was that, well, I did what you told me to. So it's in your hands now. And he kind of walked off. That was the look on his face. That was kind of the shrug in his shoulders. And he walked off. Now, what he didn't see was as soon as he was out of sight, I let those four guys go. And that was the last time I did anything like that to anybody in Iraq. And I was there for for probably another three or four weeks. And then once they were gone and I knew that we were secure and safe and I let our platoon know, hey, there's a hole there. We made it need to put a guard on it. I went back to my hooch and I just I, I clutched the letter from my wife that said our daughter was being born that day. And I just started crying because I also remembered at 14, drawing that line in the sand saying, I'm never going to become like my uncle. I'm not going to become like my cousins who've lost their way. And here I am at 27 years old and I have become my uncle and I've become somebody I'm not going to be proud of to tell my kids about. And I just kept saying over and over again, I don't want to die a monster. I don't want to be a monster anymore. My kids cannot have a dad who's a monster. Yeah. A month later, they're busting us back to Kuwait letting us diffuse for a month and then we're flying home and I got to hold my daughter for the first time and she was three months old and that was it I was like yeah I'm, I'm not gonna be that monster anymore I'm gonna do everything I can so that monster does not exist ha <sighs> so yeah of course two years after that I finally received Christ and uh, it's just it, it wasn't like instantaneous uh there are moments where my I yelled at my son and you know I'm not proud of those moments either and he remembers them He's 20 now. He's bigger than me, but he still reminds me. Hey, dad, you remember when I was like, yes, I remember. I'm sorry. <laughs> and so, and then I'll give him a hug and, and I ask if he's okay. He's like, yeah, dad, I just, uh, I want you to know I love you. I was like, oh man, I don't deserve this. This, this kid is too cool. I mean, he's a man now. He's always been that forgiving. That's good stuff. I love the vulnerability there. 
I do. I, I love the ability to say, I again had a had a moment. I mean, the, the Bible talks about so often when they would have a monumental, you know, event, they would pile up rocks and they would like remember that and they would do a sacrifice there, like, hey, we and they would name it like, Oh, this is the place where, you know, yes, you know, and they'd call it a really cool name and they'd, you know, it'd be this really long name, but it'd shorten down to this really cool, like, you know, kind of nickname almost. But no, I, I love that so much. That uh that's powerful. It was super powerful. Thanks for Thanks for sharing that. Thanks for being willing to share that even. You know, that's that's awesome stuff. Yeah, there's a lot of guys out there that they've, they've gone through combat. They've gone through some kind of war or struggle. And I, I just know they're out there holding on to that, thinking they need to just bottle it up and never let it out. But you almost have to face it and just accept that, yes, that happened. It's not who I want to be. I'm going to do something different. And so that, that's been kind of the mantra there. You know, so, yeah, there's the, the whole thing about performing and doing, you know, not letting people down. That was a big driver in my life. You know, being a better dad for my kids, better husband to my wife. I think a big driver of that is just the humility that comes with, I'm not perfect. And you don't have to be either. <laughs> and we're not called to be perfect. You know, we're, we're you know, called to be obedient to God and be connected with him. So. so I want to give you an opportunity in this moment. Obviously, you have a podcast too. And we want to make sure that we give an opportunity really for, if somebody's hearing you right now and they're like, man, is this what his show's like? I, I, I want to go listen. Like uh, we have a, maybe not, uh, maybe you don't know this guy yet, but Sean McCoy, he is a podcaster as well in Houston. And so from the Texas area, Texas born, Texas bred as some would say, but he always says, to, and he said this to me early on when I was podcasting, find people that chew the same dirt as you are. And I didn't understand that. I still, like, I still don't get the expression. Like, I don't, I don't understand. Maybe you get it better than I do, but I feel like Jerry, we are kind of chewing the same dirt. Like we're in the same kind of lane. We're kind of, you know, inspiring stories, really kind of challenging people to be better than what they are. That's why I was excited that we got a chance to sit with you today. So tell us about uh, your show beyond the rut. Like what's that all about? And, and just kind of share that with us. Nice. Uh, beyond the rut started about six years ago. A friend of mine, Brandon Cunningham, he was a pastor. He still is a pastor to this day. And he and I had been friends since about 2005, 2006. He just had it on his heart. He was going to start a podcast to help men kind of tackle the same areas where they, they seem to be stuck every single weekend. So every Sunday, he'd have a guy ask him, how do I get my wife to recognize me or respect me? How do I get my kids to to follow my lead? How do I make my job not suck? <laughs> you know, like the finances, we're hurting financially. How do we fix that? And it was like, repeat, same same question, different faces, all from men. And he just thought, gosh, it'd be so great if we can capture that on audio and share it with the world. Or I can just give these episodes to my congregation and say, hey, I'd love to spend two or three hours helping you unpack this, but start with this episode. So that was kind of like the the inspiration to start Beyond the Rut, that we were running into men who were stuck in a rut, either in their, uh, their faith, their family, their fitness, their finances, or their outlook on future possibility. And we wanted to bring them Jesus in disguise. <laughs> so kind of like Transformers, robots in disguise, but with Jesus. Because one of the things that seemed to turn guys off in their men's groups were all the cliches and the responses to their problems with a Bible verse. And what they needed were practical steps and real stories of people who've been there. And we just thought, let's have a show where we deliver that. So by about the 16th or 17th episode, we started bringing guests on and showcasing their stories of being stuck in a rut and then having that mindset shift and coming out of that. And then Brandon and I would just bring the Christian perspective without really thumping anybody over the head with cliches or Bible verses. So yeah, for about six years, the show has been delivering the message of Jesus without actually thumping you on the head with how to apply biblical principles to your life. 270 episodes, 271 Aaron, the Monday after we have this conversation, the show is now just myself and then our guests. Uh, Brandon stepped down because one thing he didn't have that he has 
now is five grandchildren. I heard he's adding a sixth one. Well, he's not adding it. His kids are adding a sixth one. And he, he has more responsibilities at his church. So I decided I'm going to carry on the torch here at Beyond the Rut. You go into that season of life. We're still friends, of course. But let's start a rumor and make it sound like uh, I fired you or something. And no, okay, we didn't start that rumor. But uh, people did wonder. They're like, hey, did you guys split up? Because like we had bets going that you guys were going to leave your wives for each other. I'm like, no, that's not. that was never going to happen. We hung out a lot. <laughs> so, um, uh, so that's Beyond the Rut. You can find us at beyondtherut.com. We're on Twitter. Facebook and Instagram, all with the same name, Beyond the Rut. There you'll find some inspirational clips from the episodes that we have. We'll air links to the show and yeah, it's just the best place to connect with us. So beyondtherut.com, that homepage will have links out to our social media to where our episodes are are based and and located on those players like Apple Podcasts and Spotify and and so much more. And what else, what else? And there's also a free goal setting tool. So if you're thinking, gosh, you know what? I want to draw a line in the sand. I want to create and design a life that is beyond the rut. I've got a free tool called uh, Measure It to Make It, and it helps you kind of take inventory of where you are right now in the areas of faith, family, fitness, finances, and your outlook on future possibility. Create some measures on what success would look like, and then create those milestones and baby steps to get there. And you just go to beyondtherut.com slash goals. Uh, if you just go to beyondtherut.com, there's a tab there as well. Isn't that fun to highlight the show? I'm always so like uncomfortable in that moment. So it's fun to put somebody else in that, but not me. <laughs> just want to put that out there. Uh, the whole time, like, did I cover everything? Did, did I cover did, everything? Did I did I cover? Here's the list in my head. Okay. So Jerry, thanks so much for coming on. I really appreciate it. I think we've had a good good conversation. I hope you've had a good, you know. Oh good yeah. Time. Okay. Good. All right. Just checking. We got quality control that we got to worry about. You know the. <laughs> but help me with this. I do know just a little bit like over from you is Fort Worth, right? Am I geographically correct in that regard? So there's this college there that I'm kind of fascinated by. That's not North Carolina. I know this is coming as a shock to some. <laughs> Partly because of their mascot. Like, I want to see one in the flesh. So here okay. here we go. So help me with this. TCU, which stands for Texas Christian University. TCU. Horned Frogs. The Horned Frogs. What the heck is a Horned Frog? Do you I, I know? It's an actual breed of frogs. Is it? Uh, okay. Yeah. The, All right. It, yeah, because, I mean, Texas is pretty dry from, like, the middle going west. And so the... Yeah, I think there's a, I believe, I'm, I got to Google this real quick. Like, did I just make that up? I'm pretty you sure. You might have, but I'll, I'll go with it because it sounds awesome. <laughs> it sounded cool, right? But we, yeah, we got to do a quick fact check cool. here. Let's see. Horn All right. So fact check yourself. Frog. But don't, don't fact check this. So seating capacity of said stadium. Do you know it by chance? Have you ever been to it? For no, a, not do yet. Do you know the seating no. capacity? You haven't no, been? No, I just okay. moved here about a year and a half ago and then the pandemic. Okay. Hit. So you haven't even gone no. yet? No. Okay. Fair enough. <laughs> well, I'll tell you the seating capacity when you do go. Might blow your mind. 50,000 people. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's a lot of people, yeah. right? So if somehow, some way, we put you 50-yard line at a Horn Frogs game, and you got men from, like, Promise Keepers of old. I'm, I'm sure you remember that. Maybe when you were in high school. I don't know. Maybe not. But what would you say in that moment to those guys that are in the rut? Yeah. That are stuck in there? The, the proverbial foxhole that they can't get out yeah. of. Oh man, the the short statement because chances are once I get up there, security will recognize they messed up and start chasing me. No, we, we <laughs> built oh, this we built event. This You're the keynote speaker. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, You're the keynote. So I'm not yeah, like yeah, yeah. crashing cliffs event. No, this is no, no, you're not clashing. No, oh. no, he's in Kentucky. No, okay, don't got it. D- yeah, no. yeah, he had. Yeah, he had. He's referring to Cliff Ravenscraft for those that didn't know who Cliff is. So just to be clear.
So the the thing that would kick this off is that life is too dang short to live it stuck in a rut. You know, that we're we're placed here with a purpose to make an impact that you are enough for what God needs you to do right now. You've got the skills, you have the experience, you have the knowledge. And if you look around, you've been placed around the people to either help or to have help you or to synergize with and go change the world and do it all for God. I drop the mic and <laughs> no, these are expensive. <laughs> I love that. But do you think anyone would listen to you in that moment? Do you feel like? I think so because I'm keeping it short. And if they are feeling stuck in a rut, that little reminder that life is too short, I think would be that eye opener. And for me, it was being in combat, you know, seeing war and seeing you know people die and seeing you know people who probably had families no longer being there with their families and and so yeah i think that that big stir would be oh okay let's draw that line in the sand yeah i think that's so important to have that line drawn in the sand and to remind yourself no matter if it's your family no matter who it is that you truly are enough that your your validation doesn't come from those around you that it really does come from above yes Bingo. Uh, Jerry, you mentioned you're kind of competitive, right? I, did I hear that correctly? I, I keep it relatively suppressed, yeah. <laughs> Seemed like a really chill guy. Like nothing really riles up Jerry. I just, I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong in that respect. Oh, no. I, I stay pretty calm these days. Uh, it, it I think it depends, though. Like um, my panic face looks a lot like my calm face. I think I've been told that. Yeah. But the panic is still there. I just don't externalize so it. So you're like an Oregon duck, right? You just, you know. <laughs> Paddle like crazy underneath oh, the water? Yeah. Is that just how that goes? Yeah. Yeah, you're probably shooting a machine gun at just me, but I'm like, doo, 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 like doo, doo. <laughs> Fine, it's cool. All right. So here's our game we like to play at the end of our show. It's a game called Senseless. I'm sure you've heard of this and maybe even have wanted to play it because it is the fastest growing game in the country. I think it was trending on Twitter last week. Totally kidding, of course. No, totally totally kidding. Yeah, you know, we got this cup here. I don't know. This gets you excited about basketball, probably not. But anyway, it's a lot. Tar Heel stuff everywhere. All right, so here we go. Here's our game, Senseless, rolling on your behalf. So what's weird is you got the number six. So six is the wild card, and it is my favorite question we get to ask. So, Jerry, you get to have a meal because people were freaking out about dinner. So maybe some people are breakfast people or brunch people or lunch people or midnight snack people. I don't know. But you have to have a meal, or you get to have a meal, with one person, dead or alive, who would it be and why? Oh, man. Oh, man, oh, man, oh, man. Um, um, like, every name is popping into my By head. By the way, you're, I, um, I love your bride. I'm sure she's uh, the most amazing person on the planet. However, she does not get to come. Sorry, it's a... Yeah, okay. Yeah, I, I assume that was part of the rules. Some <laughs> people try to sneak people in. I'm like, no. One, you and this person. Gosh. Um, I think I would go with, oddly enough... George Patton. Okay, I'm I am so intrigued right now. Help us with George Patton. I I think I know who he is, but but for those that may not know. Yeah, General Patton. General George S. Patton, I believe. Or is that George C. Scott who played Patton? Oh my gosh. Now I gotta Google that and fact check myself. But General Patton, that guy. Um there was a bluntness about him that I don't know why, I just inspires me in some way. I think because I am so diplomatic and so cautious in relationships uh, that I don't want to ruin relationships that sometimes I will sort of slow down my pace towards a goal. And then here's this guy, General Patton, who says, I'll fix the relationships later and just like barrels through and achieves stuff. So there's kind of this dual 
intent to one learn a little bit about what drives him to go out and just go forth like that and seize the moment and seize the objective but then i also want to identify the flip side of that you know what is that impact on his family and relationships and what lessons can i learn from that as well that would be the guy and plus i think it would just be fun and colorful to say i had dinner with Patton. so guys and gals kids and campers alike i don't know about anybody else has anybody ever not felt like they fit into their family anyone show of hands right now if you're driving keep you know 10 and 2 you know but uh i'm sure all of us on some level have struggled with not feeling enough in our family feeling like maybe we had to carry everything feeling like we had to just have the whole family on our shoulders i don't know about anybody else i know jerry was talking about his moment really was when he wasn't feeling enough you know in the army in that moment but being a military kid, I know that the military is much like a family. And feeling like you let them down, feeling like you weren't good enough, feeling like that is a true, real feeling. So I want to ask you this question today as we wrap up. Here's the question. What can you do to make a positive impact on your family? What can you do? Now, maybe that's something small. Maybe it's just sending an I love you to your mom and dad if they're still around. Maybe that's calling up that proverbial, you know, prodigal brother that hasn't talked to you in seven years. Not looking at myself in any way. I promise. Asking for a friend, of course, as I always say. But what can you do to make that family member know, listen, I value you. I appreciate you. We might have been knuckleheads when we were growing up, but I love you now. I have that story. Maybe you can have it too. So just remember that. As we close out today. And if you do that, if you take that challenge, I, of course, would love to hear about OPSpodcast.com. Just drop me a little note. Send me a little message on Instagram. Let me know that you did that. I would be honest with you about my struggles if you're honest with me, right? Isn't that how that works? It's fun. Everybody loves to be honest. But again, as we close out today, just remember this. It's so often forgotten, I feel like. But I think it needs to be repeated daily least to myself and maybe others as well. So here it is. Remember this. Remember when you walk in other people's shoes, you really do get a different perspective on life. Stay tuned till next week when we walk in other people's shoes.